Thank you for joining us in worship today. The service you are watching was recorded on June 18th, 2017. We will return to live broadcast on August 6th, 2017. Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. Our first lesson today comes from the prophet Isaiah, picking up in chapter 52, verse 13, and reading today what's called one of the servant songs. Listen now to the Word of God. See, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. And just as there were many who were astonished at him, so marred was his appearance beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of mortals. So he shall startle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that, for that which had not been told them they shall see and that which they see had not heard they shall contemplate. Who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account." Surely he has borne our affirmities and carried our diseases, and yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have all turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken out for this transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain when you make his life an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. And through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light, he shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore I will lot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, 
because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made, the, and made intercession for the transgressors. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading this morning comes from the book of Philippians in the New Testament. Paul wrote to this group of Christians, and he had quite uh, an intense um, relationship with them. And he writes with passion and with encouragement for them. And one of the things that he is encouraging them to do is to live in the way of Jesus. And he comes into the second chapter to use uh, uh, what is a, essentially a song or a hymn. Uh, there's not music to it, but they're lyrics. So these verses are, uh, are that offering uh, from Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. On more than one occasion, I've shared with you that I'm the kind of person that grew up in church. I grew up in a Baptist church. Um, we went a lot when I was a child and a youth. I recall uh, a number of things about them. One of them is the way in which the, the preacher preached and some of the topics that he preached about. One of the things he kept recurring and re referring to was what he called the social gospel. He didn't explain a lot about what it was, and as a child, I didn't understand, but I knew that he was against it. The social gospel was something that you were again. It had a lot to do, I think, with the time and the place. Um, what he emphasized was the altar call at the end of the service and inviting people to come down. When I graduated from high school, uh, the pastor, along with the church, uh, gave a book to all the graduating seniors. And just as we do in this church and many other churches do at that time, and maybe you have experienced in your own life at that moment of transition, you're called forward and you're presented a book. I was expecting a Bible. That's very commonly what it is. But I did not receive a Bible from the church at that point in my life. I received a novel. It was titled In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. I didn't read it. I simply took it home and I put it on the shelf. I used to know where it is, but I think I've moved so many times since then that it's lost. But I remember I received the book. I went off to college. I went to a Baptist university. I came under the influence of a history professor who happened to be a Baptist minister. He was not like any other Baptist minister I had ever known to that point in my life. And I remember one course that I was taking with him in American history. 
he was talking about all the different religious movements and some of the, the movements of thought and, and ideas that had happened in our history as a nation. And we had talked about the Puritans and the Shakers and all those sorts of things. And then one day he came in and he announced the topic of the day. And he said, the topic of the day is the social gospel. Great, I knew. I know all there is to know about it. You're again it. It's that simple. And then he asked a question. He said, how many of you have read a novel by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps? And turns out that that novel had a very wide following in the 20th century in Baptist circles and in many other uh, church communities as well. Um, it was written by, uh, it was written before the turn of the uh, 20th century. It was written 120 years ago by a congregational, congregationalist minister. How could it be that something that my preacher growing up had preached against this social gospel concept, how could it be that he gave me a textbook of it when I came of age in that way? You may know the book In His Steps by another title, by the subtitle. Do you know what it is? What Would Jesus Do? In His Steps colon, what would Jesus do? You've probably seen the WWJD thing that was popular a few years ago. Yeah? Same stuff. It's been around. It wasn't new then. It's been around for a long time. And I think it's important to think about that. What would Jesus do for us? But there's another question. What did Jesus do? Exactly what was it? that Jesus did? And what influence does that have on us? How do we talk about that? You saw from the church sign and in the bulletin that the sermons during this season of, the, of summer are about a Christian's toolbox. And we're looking at the Apostles' Creed here this week and next and, and, and a, a couple of weeks and then also the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes, tools that are useful for us to recall and to think about as we live our lives, reference points that we can refer to in our devotional and our thought lives as we plan our actions and our discipleship. The Greek uh, mathematician Archimedes said that if you gave him a lever long enough and a fulcrum in the right place, he said, I can move the world. Tools are those things that allow us to take what little power we may have and ratchet it up and transform it into something that is uh, useful to the world. It can be used, tools can be used for good or they can be used for ill, but the Christian's toolbox should be that which enhances and amplifies our faith as individuals and as a community. So last week we looked at the Apostles' Creed and looked at the first affirmation of it, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Today I want to look at the second part, the part that talks about Jesus. 
there's an ancient creed. In fact, biblical scholars say it's the, the first creed that was actually developed. And it was very simple. It is Jesus is Lord, period. Jesus is Lord, period. It says everything you need to know. It has a, a subject and a, a predicate and a verb in the middle. It, it, it has everything you need to know. Um, Jesus is Lord. And yet, we want to know more. We have inquiring minds. We want to know more. We want to know what is part of that. Where does that come from? The second stanza of the Apostles' Creed goes, as, as you may recall, or, and we will use in just a few minutes, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, we believe, I believe, Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascends into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. There's a lot there. Jesus is Lord is one statement. And then this long paragraph, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, descends into hell, rose again, sits in heaven, and judges the quick and the dead. And what are the, who are the quick and the dead? That's ancient language, that's Shakespearean language for King James language for those who are alive and those who are passed on. Those who are alive, us, as well as those who've gone on. The living and the dead, the modern translations read. There are at least two responses to these claims of the Apostles' Creed. One is to affirm them. Yeah, check that off the list. I make the statement. A second response might be to say, mm, I've got some questions. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, people who hold the first position of checking things off the box will double down on the accuracy and the orthodoxy of their position. And then what happens sometimes is people who have questions double down on their doubts and say, no way is that going to happen. And so what happens is a ratcheting up of steadfastness and earnestness in these approaches, which is useful, but it devolves into defiance and recalcitrance. And one side saying it has to be this way and the other side saying, no, it can't be. And there are battles over who is right and who has truth. You have to agree with my interpretation. You have to be like-minded with me and that gets us into some really uncomfortable and difficult places. Have you ever been there? Certainly in our larger society today, we are experiencing debates like that, and we've experienced them in churches as well. Not to put too fine a point on it, but when any individual 
takes it upon himself or herself that they have the prerogative to eliminate opposition, to eliminate opposition by however it's done, by shooting them, as tried to happen this past week in Washington, or by exerting violence, as happened a year ago in a nightclub in Orlando and a church two years ago in Charleston, that is wrong. The challenge for people of faith in Jesus Christ is that we have to be the ballast for all of the craziness in the world out there. We need to not simply be citizens of our country and exercise proper citizenship and vote and engage and have disagreements but find ways to move forward. We also are citizens of faith in the commonwealth of heaven. And that adds a second layer to our responsibility. But, I do, I, but to return to the Apostles' Creed, I think that needs to be said today, but to return to the Apostles' Creed as a tool for us in our Christian toolbox, which I pray will help us get to a place of being the ballast of faith and service and humility in the world. It's important to remember that creeds in the Presbyterian Church are thought of not as holy writ or holy scripture. Creeds in our denominational tradition are ways to help us reflect on how other people, other Christians before us express their faith so we can figure out what we need to do now and so that in the future, people can look back to us as an example. The Apostles' Creed comes to us from a particular time when it was important for the world to know what Jesus is Lord meant. Just as it is important today for us to be able to share that news with the world around us. The creeds that we have, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Westminster Confession of Faith, all of those are, according to our book of order, to serve, to strengthen our personal commitment in our lives as witness, as communities of believers. But it goes on, or it, and it goes on to say, the creeds and confessions of this church, of our denomination, arose in response to particular circumstances within the history of God's people. They appeal to universal truth of the gospel while expressing that truth within the social and cultural assumptions of their time. They affirm a common faith tradition while also from time to time standing in tension with each other. And they are not above the scripture. They are subordinate standards, but they are important standards and we should not deal lightly with them or reject them simply out of hand. All of that to say is that the Apostles' Creed is a tool that magnifies our understanding that Jesus is Lord. And what does that mean? How do we lift that up? The challenge 
before Christians as they developed the Apostles' Creed in their day and time was whether Jesus was human and divine. Was Jesus merely a human being? Was he a, just another guy who did some good things, said some nice things, maybe had some miraculous powers of healing that were sort of unexplainable? Was that who Jesus was, simply a good guy, a person? Or was Jesus a God who came down and walked on earth, yet was separated from earth? Because God, the divine, could not be part of this messy human flesh. Could God experience human emotions and human pain and suffering? The answer of the church through, through the Apostles' Creed and throughout its history is that yes, God is both. God is fully human and also fully divine. God in Jesus was born of flesh. We say born of the Virgin Mary and oftentimes that sort of takes people on a trajectory of some sort of miraculous or immaculate conception. But the important word there is not the Virgin Mary, the important word is born. Born. If you have ever attended a birth, you know it is a painful, messy event. But my goodness, it is one of the most powerful and amazing testimonies of what it means to be a human being. Born. Jesus was born in human flesh. And Jesus died in human flesh. Jesus suffered and experienced pain on the cross. He lived that life. Jesus was fully human. And yet, and I can't explain all the chemistry or the contraptions that go, we also know God did something special in Jesus by creating and being here. Other ancient religions had incarnations where gods would come down and be, walk around as people. But oftentimes they were simply to mess with us, to play with us. But that's not what God did. God came to walk with us and to live through us. The two scriptures read today speak of this power, of these ways in which Jesus served and the ways in which the attitude by which he lived. The prophecy from Isaiah is one of four of the suffering servant songs, as it is called. Isaiah was the scripture that the children of Israel received and listened and developed while they were in captivity. Their, their nation, nation had been militarily defeated and a number of them had literally been picked up from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas in, in Judea and they had been transported to what we now know of as the nation of Iraq, to Babylon. And they sat on the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates 
a thousand miles from where their home was. And this song emerged. There will be a Messiah, this idea of Messiah, this idea of one who will come, who will lead you out. Christians affirm that this suffering servant spoken of in Messiah, as, as the Messiah, as the who we call the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, Christians affirm that this is Jesus, and this is who he was, and leads us to where we will be. No one has seen God. That's what Jesus affirms in the Gospel of John. So God put on human flesh to live with us and be with us to be born and to die. For Jesus to become flesh required obedience. Jesus is in our doctrine, our teachings, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus didn't have to do this. That's the affirmation. Yet, he did. Jesus did this to show the divine relationship of God, whom he called Abba, with God the Son, the creator who made the world, the one who saves the world, who redeems us and those around us. The song in Philippians tells us that Jesus did not pull rank. It was part of Jesus' constitution not to manipulate or toy with humanity. Rather, God in Jesus entered into our messy world. The Lutheran theologian Elizabeth Shively puts it this way, it is the very nature of the divine to act in humble, self-sacrificial service. That's it. The thing, the tool that we learn is from Jesus is sacrifice and service. That is how we live our lives. In our world, as we do business, as we learn, as we go about our neighborhood and school activities, in our world, we want to choose things to do that will have good results. We want good outcomes good positive events. We focus on what we should do in the future, but we also need not forget what has been done in the past. What did Jesus do? Jesus became obedient and went where no one else would go to do things no one else would do. In Jesus, God took on humanity in an integral and intimate way for the purpose of showing us in a, a different way to live our lives. In so doing, Jesus changed all the possibilities for us, not only in this world, but in the world that will be. You and I cannot do what Jesus did. We cannot go out and save the world in the same way. But we can 
use the example of service and humility to take us to places we might not otherwise go and to share the wonder of the different way of life that God offers to humanity through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.